Bismillah, Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Wassalatu Wassalam, Ala Rasulillah, Wa Ala Alihi Wa Sahbihi Wa Mamulah, Amma Ba'd. Assalamu Alaikum Wa Rahmatullahi Ta'ala Wa Barakatuh. How's everybody doing? Alhamdulillah, fantastic. So today, inshaAllah Ta'ala, we are continuing with hadith number 32. And this is the hadith uh, in which the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says, La Darara wa La Dirar. La Darara wa La Dirar. The Prophet says what? There should be neither harming nor the reciprocation of harm. This is sort of the standard translation of this hadith. Uh, it's a very important hadith. It is mentioned in Sunan Ibn Majah, uh, also Muwatta Imam Malik, and many others as well. It is considered Hassan li Ghayrihi by a number of scholars, including An Nawawi, uh, Ibn Rajab al Albani, uh, Shu'ib al Arnaut, and so on and so forth. So, first and foremost, t the technical language of this statement could be understood as a statement of fact saying that there is no harming or reciprocation of harm. But that understanding doesn't make much sense because clearly people get harmed all the time. So to just say, if the Prophet was saying, oh, there is no harm, like no, nobody ever gets harmed, it doesn't make much sense. And so this is very common in, in the Arabic language when you make a statement like this, but you're really talking about what th things should be or you're making a prohibition. You're saying there shouldn't be harm, nor should there be the reciprocation of harm. Like uh, uh, if like, for example, you know, let's say people are having a basketball game and you say, there will be no fights tonight. There will be no fighting tonight. Are you saying for a fact that there will be no fighting tonight or are you saying there should be no fights tonight? So when you make a statement like that, I think everybody understands, even in the English language, this is quite common. Now, um, what's interesting is that darar and the word dirar are both the masadir, or it's the mustar, which is the infinitive form, implying that this statement is exhaustive. It is a statement in its most complete sense. In other words, you could translate it as all forms of darar and all forms of dirar are absolutely prohibited. It's a very powerful statement in just the fact that it, these are uh, mustaran, you could say two mustars. Um, now, of course, does this mean that there will never be any harm? Now, we know, obviously, harm can be done from a legal perspective, right? So how do we reconcile that? How is it that this is an absolute statement that there should be no harm, and yet we know for a fact that in Islam, you do want to have police, and you do want, they should have weapons, and those, they should use those weapons in, in times of danger. And same thing with armies, and so on and so forth. There are punishments for different things. So the idea is, clearly, the exception are hudud, which are the legal boundaries of Allah, that if, if crossed, you get a, you get a punishment, and ta'zir. Ta'zir is when there isn't a specific punishment mentioned in the Qur'an and Sunnah, and therefore the judge comes up with his own ruling and says, this is your punishment, whatever it may be, based on you know, his assessment. Uh, and so that's called, so the hudud and ta'zir are the exception. Why are they the exception? Because ultimately, even though you are technically harming somebody, it is for the greater good. And I think everybody understands this. Obviously, if somebody's going around trying to harm people, then uh, you know, uh, subduing that person, hurting that person, even if necessary, killing that person, is, uh, this is what police do every day. And we all, we, nobody wants to live in a, in a world where there's no police. Nobody wants to live in a world where there's no armies. We want to make sure that we can protect our own selves. So in that sense, uh, I hope everybody understands that these are the exceptions because they cause a greater good. I think that's pretty obvious. Now. Allah knows best. Now, what do these two words mean? Let's go into a little bit more detail. The word darar and dirar, you're saying, oh, the Prophet, the Prophet is saying there should be neither of these two things. One interpretation, which is the weakest interpretation, is that they both mean the same thing. There should be no harm, no harm at all. It's just like double emphasis. Now, when two things come together, when you think that, oh, they both mean the same thing, this is usually the weakest interpretation. Why? Because then you're being repetitious, and that's usually not uh, eloquence. Usually, there's, especially if there's two different words, there's a reason why these two different words are used. So this is the weakest opinion, the idea of a double emphasis. Ibn Abdul Barr, rahimullah, he says what? Darar is an unprovoked crime. 
So let's say, for example, you just walk up to somebody and just start hurting them, uh, uh, attacking them. This is an unprovoked crime. This is dharar. You're harming him. Dharar is revenge. So you find out that, hey, my cousin got beat up, so let's go jump that guy and uh, basically take it into our own hands. Instead of going to the police the correct way, instead of going to the judge and the, and the government in the correct way, let's do vigilante justice. So there should be no harming nor reciprocation of harm in sort of this vigilante style. That's the interpretation of Ibn Abdul Bar, which it's often translated as. There's another interpretation by Al-Baji who says, Rahimullah, he says, Darar is, in, is implying a benefit with a benefit for the individual with an unintended harm for somebody else. This is, you know, and then dirar is a harm with no benefit whatsoever. So what does this mean? So what is a harm that somebody might cause to somebody else unintentionally while they're trying to benefit themselves? What is an example of this? Okay, simple example. I am living in my home. I have a nice garden in the backyard. I like to water my garden a lot of water to get a really nice yield, to get nice crops. I pour so much water that the water r runs off of my yard and flows into my neighbor's yard. It floods and destroys his garden. Or it goes and floods into his, um, uh, let's say, his, his basement and messes his basement up. Or let's say it floods into his pool and now his pool is full of muddy water, whatever the case is, right? Something bad happens to him. The guy comes to my house and says, hey, stop doing that, you're messing up my home. And then I say in response, first of all, I didn't intend to mess, with, mess up your home. I had no intention whatsoever. And second of all, it's my yard and I want to take care of it. And it's not my problem if, you know, the water runs off because that's not my issue. My issue is taking care of my yard. I deal with my problems, you deal with your problems. If you want, build some sort of a barrier. That's, that's up to you. So you could have that attitude, right? And so you could say, listen, as long as I'm on my property doing my thing, then that's my business and, uh, you know, my personal rights trump your, uh, uh, your uh, let's say, uh, wellness. Okay. And dirar would be when harming somebody... Uh, that has no benefit. And this would be like vandalism or just doing some sort of act of, of harm to others for no reason. Now, this actually gets us into a bit of a sticky situation because now we have to start considering how much can we allow for individual rights, individual rights versus the general benefit of others. So you can, you can imagine throughout Islamic history, <clears throat> many scholars had to sort of back and forth, uh, what's it called, uh, uh, have a little bit of a tug of war between these two issues because... Situations arise where things are not clear. So let's use an example that is clear that everybody has consensus on. So it seems that there is consensus with regards to, let's say, a man who builds a bonfire in his backyard. It's his house. It's his bonfire. He can do that. But it's on a very windy day. And because it's a windy day, the sparks get blown over into his neighbor's yard and he burns down his neighbor's home. Is he considered liable? The consensus is yes, you were irresponsible. For him to say, look, I'm allowed to have a fire on my yard, I can't control the wind, etc., etc., not acceptable. No, you are supposed to be more careful because fire is very dangerous. So there's consensus there. However, there are other situations that are not so clear. So, for, for instance, the Hanafis have a very particular position when it comes to, let's say, there's one example of when a man cuts down his tree that provides shade to his neighbor. So you have your yard and you have a nice big tree on it. And the neighbor loves the shade that he gets from that tree. So he says, well, I'm going to chop down my tree. And the guy says, wait, 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 that's going to leave us cooking in the sun. That's not nice. I mean, we, we benefit from that shade so much. It's my tree. It's my yard. I can do whatever I want. So the Hanafis would say, well, <clears throat> that is permissible. Even if it leads to some sort of small harm, it's your tree. It's permissible for you to cut it. However, the Ahnaf or the Hanafis, they have a very particular position when it comes to when the property is mutual. So for example, if there's a bunch of guys that are roommates and they're all putting money into this apartment, but they all have separate rooms. And one of them, he buys, let's say, an animal. And that animal has a really bad odor, right? 
and it makes the whole place smell. Because everybody is involved, because essentially uh, 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 they're all vest, they all have a vested interest into that property, that means even a slight harm is considered too much. So even that bad smell, no, not allowed. Why? Because they're, they're paying for that property. So the Hanafis kind of take a middle path in that sense. If there's a vested interest, then you have to be very careful with any harm. Otherwise, then the individual rights uh, are, are uh, paramount, you could say. Well, Adam. The Shafiris, they have the position where so long as a person isn't doing something extravagant or completely extraordinary, he is not liable if something goes wrong. Basically, the Shafiris seem to place a lot of emphasis on individual rights. And so, for instance, if a man digs a well in his own yard and that well is going to cause harm to his neighbor's well. So you can imagine, let's say, underneath the ground there's water flowing and one guy, the neighbor is getting certain water from that. And I'm like, well, I'm just going to dig a hole and take all that water and then that guy's well is going to dry up. The Shawafir or the Shafi'is, what will they say? They'll say, yeah, that's fine. You're completely allowed to, it's your, it's your property, and if that guy's well gets messed up because of it, that's, only, that's his problem, don't even worry about it. So they are very much focused on what? Individual rights. However, the Malikiya, the Malikis, they actually flip it. They say, no, if a man digs a well on his own property that causes harm to his neighbor's well, then this is impermissible. And then the, Mal the, ha the Hanbalis, or the Hanabila, they go the furthest when it comes to public rights. They go the furthest. So they say, even to the point, if you have any harm towards anybody else, then whatever you're doing on your, on your private property, you should stop it. And if they don't stop it, then the government should get involved and say, we're going to stop you anyhow. So the Hanbalis take a very strict approach on this. So even to the point where, if a man has a home, and he wants to build a second floor on top of his home, but then that second floor is going to block the sunlight and the guy says, no, I, I don't want to be stuck in the shade. I want that light, maybe for my garden or whatever the case is. The, to the point that even just sunlight, the Hanabila will say, what? You're not allowed to make that second floor to block this guy's uh, sunlight. SubhanAllah, but it's my property. doesn't matter because you're causing some sort of harm. La darar wa la dirar. You're not allowed to do that. And even if building a second floor will uh, give him a height so that he can look down into his neighbor's property. See, some people would say, well, if I can look into your property, just build a, you know, a wall to, to block my view. That's your problem, you know? You build the wall to, to build your privacy. The Hanabila would say, no, it's, you're not allowed to build the second floor. Why? Because you, you, you shouldn't have anything that is going to harm him by looking down into his uh, private area. He doesn't have to make the wall even higher. So subhanAllah, what you basically get, I know that's a little bit of, quite a bit of information, but what you see is this sort of tug of war between the emphasis on communal obligation, which is headed by the Hanabila, the Hanbalis, who are really strict on that, and then followed by the Malikis, who are a little bit less. And then the most emphasis on the other side of the equation, on individual rights, the ones leading that charge, it seems to be the Shawafir or the Shafiris, and then followed by the Hanafis. So you can see that in fiqh, things are not always black and white. Sometimes these issues are quite um, uh, difficult to gauge. Now, then the question comes in, okay, so what is the best conclusion? I don't really, I can't, I can't claim that I have uh, some, some all-encompassing conclusion, but I do think that there's one thing that we can conclude, that you always have to take culture into consideration. You always have to take culture into consideration. What do I mean? That based on your circumstances, you'll often find that in one culture, some things are considered more normal, and in other cultures and in other circumstances, other things are not considered so normal. So for example, if there's no harm whatsoever, then in our culture, during rush hour, Am I allowed to go out onto the road and therefore cause more traffic? By causing more traffic, I'm making everybody more late. This is something that in our culture, everybody accepts as normal, right? Nobody says, hey, 
but you're making more people late by going on the, on, on the highway today. No, they're like, that's part, of the, that's part of life, man. That This is an accepted harm that you're causing, you know, quote-unquote harm, by just making people slightly more late. So this is not something that is usually debated. And so therefore, you can see that based on our culture, this is considered an acceptable, quote-unquote, harm. Allah knows best. And then there are other things that are unacceptable no matter what culture you go to. For, for instance, the idea of the guy being careless with his bonfire. This is something that, uh, you know, it seems across the board there's no exceptions to this. So I hope that gives you just an idea. Of course, we're not covering every scenario, and nor can we give a determinative, you know, with full determination, but I just want to give you guys an example of what type of debates become created from a legal perspective because of statements like la darra wa la dirar, saying that you shouldn't harm people. Okay, well, how much does individual versus communal rights play a factor? How much can we pull up, uh, you know, how much can we, can we, can we, how much room is there in this tug of war, so to speak? Now, in terms of the Qur'an, this concept of dirar does come up when Allah Ta'ala says what? Usually comes up in terms of marriage. So there's, there's, there's these uh, uh, different circumstances. Allah says, Allah says what? And when you divorce a woman or your women, speaking plural, and they have nearly fulfilled their term, their idda, we'll mention that what that is in a moment, either retain them as in stay married or uh, either retain them according to what is acceptable, بالمعروف, you know, in a, in, a, in a kind way, either stay married in a kind way, or release them, as in divorce them, in a kind way, بالمعروف, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a respectable and in good way. And do not keep them intending harm. Do not try to hold on out of spite. Biraran or ta'atadu, so, so in order to transgress or to do something evil against them. So what is this talking about? Well, first and foremost, when can a man divorce his wife? Only when she is in a state of tuhur. Tuhur re refers to when she is not in her menses, when she is um, uh, not during her hayb period. So uh, many people don't know this, but you know they get married and they don't know these details, but you're not allowed to divorce uh, when a woman is during her menses, during her hayb period. You, can only, you have to wait until, inshallah, she is in her tuhur period, and then you can actually initiate the divorce. Once that divorce is initiated, you have to wait, what? There's the idda period, which is three months. Three months, what, what is the wisdom behind these three months of waiting? Some would say to cool off, right? And to figure out whether you just did the divorce out of rage and then you want to take her back or uh, whether you want to go through with it. So you got three months. Another reason, another wisdom, and Allah knows best, maybe there's many wisdoms, but another wisdom is because during those three months, you are assuring that she's not pregnant, right? Because if she goes through three months and has three different periods, then clearly she is not uh, carrying a child, inshallah ta'ala. So these are different reasons uh, why there is this idda period. Now, this was even popular and, and well-known during the Jahiliya period, that they would have this period of time where you divorced and then she's waiting, and then you can either take her back or uh, continue with the divorce. And so what some men would do, just out of spite, just out of pure rage, imagine a very horrible relationship, they both hate each other so much, and the guy is going to take advantage of his position, and so what is he going to do? He's going to say, I divorce you, and then after three months, he says, oh, okay, no, don't worry, I take you back. He takes her back for, let's say, one day, and then boom, I divorce you again. Another three months waiting period. I take you back again, divorce again. And so he keeps on messing with her. Why? Because he's, he's, he's enraged, he's, he's spiteful. It's a very evil thing to do. One of the wisdoms, Allah Ta'ala forbade this and said what? You have three talaqs. After three, you can't do that again. So one reason why is to stop this jahili practice of this sort of taking back and forth out of spite. So men, men can't do that to, to, to their wives. Another wisdom behind this is that sometimes the guy isn't doing this out of spite. Sometimes a relationship is just a love-hate relationship, right? Sometimes there are people who, you know, I, I can't stand being with you and I can't stand being without you. I'm, you know, 
<laughs> how much is this referenced in pop culture, right? How many, a million times, right? So clearly this stuff exists. So my point is just to say that this exists and some people, they're together, they're uh, separated, together, separated, and they go back and forth and back and forth. So Allah Ta'ala is saying, listen, this is a clearly a toxic relationship. You guys really don't know what you're doing. You have three shots at this. After that, walk away. Uh, uh, and then of course, you have to marry somebody else. And then if you do marry somebody else, then theoretically, if you divorce that person, you can go back to the original one, uh, but you're not allowed to do it with the intention of trying to get back. That's a whole other legal issue. Uh, there's another practice that is done, again, by some spiteful men, which is called uh, al-ila. Al-ila is mentioned in the Quran. And what is this uh, process of ila? Basically, it is when a man is so angry at his wife and wants to essentially abuse her. So what does he do? He uh, is, stays married to her, never divorces her, but just won't physically engage with her. No intimacy. I don't want to touch you. I don't want to be around you. I want to show no in, uh, affection towards you. So the woman is kind of like she's divorced. And so that's pretty stressful, but she can't go and marry somebody else because she's technically married. And so what does Allah say about this? Allah says, For those who swear not to have sexual relations with their wives is a waiting, is a waiting time of four months. You can only hold off for four months. But if they return, as in if they return to normal and being you know, engaged with their wife, etc., then indeed Allah is forgiving and merciful. So in other words, you're mad, you guys, or maybe, you know, you're, whatever the case is, you're taking some time off, you're cooling off, whatever the case is, you got four months. After that, if you say, no, 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 I'm going to spend a whole year or whatever, you know, five months, six months, whatever, keep going, and I'm not even going to touch her, then no, now that's grounds for a divorce. And so she can seek divorce, and then that's, that's it. Um, yes. So these are all examples of what? Darar. These are examples in the Quran of people trying to do harm within the means of what is halal to them. And so Allah Ta'ala is blocking those means and stopping people from using their own rights to harm others. You know, watering your own grass, starting your own bonfire, or abusing the divorce and remarry system, or just staying married and then not touching her just so I can mess with her. All these things, subhanAllah, Allah is saying what? La darar wa la dirar. You can't try to manipulate or, you know, uh, lawyer uh, law in such a way where you get, you know, do some harm and you say, what? It's within the bounds of, of the law. No, Allah Ta'ala cuts these things off because there should be no harm. What's really interesting also, is that subhanAllah, the more you sacrifice your rights for others, the more reward you get. So for instance, on Jum'ah, everybody has the right to park wherever they want, right? You can park wherever you want. But if you come early, okay, and you say, look, because I'm early, I can take my time to walk to the masjid. So you know what I'll do? I'll park near the back. I won't take one of the closer parking spots. I'll park further down. Why? So that I know that the people who come late, I want them to park close so they can come in quickly. I want to do them a favor, right? So you are doing what? You have a right to park close and you know, benefit from that by just you know, quickly going in. But you're sacrificing that, your own right for the benefits of others, the more reward you get inshallah ta'ala. So this is a beautiful deen, and this is something that Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is highlighting, and the Prophet is, is saying what? That Allah ta'ala has prohibited everything that is harmful. And even the things that have punishments in Islam, they're for the greater good anyhow. And so you could, another way you could say this is what? That Islamic law is beneficial for humankind. That is like a huge objective behind this deen is to just be of benefit to humankind. And this is exactly what Allah says when Allah tells us what? وَمَا جَعَلَ عَلَيْكُمْ فِي الدِّينِ مِنْ حَرَجٍ He has not placed upon you in this deen any difficulty. That this whole deen is meant to make your life easier. This also brings up, and this is going to be uh, the final uh, point inshallah ta'ala, uh, which is a sort of broader topic of Islamic studies in general. And how, how to approach Islamic studies and the various categories of Islamic studies. And so just a very brief overview, and you know, we could talk about this for a much longer, and there's people that are way more qualified than I am, but I just want to give some basic ideas that I think are helpful. Because sometimes people say, I want to study Islam, but they don't really know where to start. 
and they don't know how to start on the, you know, the first floor, then build to the second floor, and sometimes they jump to the top floor before they've built the base. This is a problem, right? So how can we build ourselves up properly? Well, sometimes, well, one of the best things to do is to start with language and logic. Why is that the case? Because the, the whole Quran and Sunnah, they're in the Arabic language. And so you need to know the details and the uh, nuances of the language so that you don't miss anything. So you want to start with the Arabic language and you want to start also with logic because there's going to be a lot of logical ideas of how Islamic law is reasoned and the, the, the ideas behind it. And if you're not a logical person and if you have no concept of, you know, if you're not strong when it comes to logic, a lot of things will go right over your head. So this is a helpful starting point to make sure that you are. And by the way, there are certain legal maxims in Islam that are just based on logic. And we can go through that, but anyway, uh, that's a whole other topic. After that, now you use this Arabic and you use your logical, rational mind to do what? To start analyzing the Qur'an and Sunnah to, to start understanding what are the rulings. So Allah says this, and this is therefore, let's say, a uh, prohibition. Or this is something that is obligatory, and so on and so forth. Now what's interesting, and this is what is called fiqh. When you study fiqh, you understand, okay, these are the proofs, these are the evidences, and these are the rulings. And when you study that over and over and over again, so first you start with the Arabic, uh, Arabic and, and logic, and then you're moving on to fiqh studies. And when you study fiqh quite a bit, what you start to notice are patterns. What you start to notice are patterns. Like for example, you have a case where something is uh, impermissible. Why? Because of a certain illah, because of a certain cause. But then you find that something else is also prohibited for that same reason, for that same cause. There's another illah. And then you find that again and again and again. And then you say, oh look, it seems that every time something fits this pattern, the ruling is going to be that. So then now that when you start noticing these patterns in Islamic law, and I'll give examples of this in a moment. I know I'm speaking very, uh, what's it called? Abstract in a moment, right now. But I'll give examples in a moment. But sometimes when you start noticing these patterns, you can create legal maxims that sort of capture and summarize what is going on within Islamic law. And those are called, one of them is called a qa'ida, and, which is a principle or a maxim, a legal maxim. And al-qawa'id is the plural, al-qawa'id al-fiqhiyya is a reference to what legal maxims of Islam or of uh, Islamic law. And this is where we get the uh, ta'rif. This is where we get the definition of usul al-fiqh. Now we're starting to build up the principles because now we start having our qawa'id, our principles. And so usul al-fiqh, the definition of it is what? Al-ilmu bil qawa'idi allati yatawassalu biha ila istimbaat al-ahkam al-shari'iyati al-fari'iyati min adillatiha al-tafsiliyya. That the definition of usul al-fiqh is what? Knowledge of the principles through which the derivation of Islamic rulings are reached from their detailed proofs. So in other words, now that you have seen so many rulings and now you are starting to develop these principles, you can use these principles to go on and help you to reach and arrive at different rulings. So let me explain to you, and this hopefully will clear up where I'm going with this, that there are five main qawa'id uh, al-fiqhiyya, five main maxims, legal maxims, that really cover a lot of ground. What are they? The five main ones are al-umuru bi maqasidiha. Al-umuru bi-maqasidiha means what? That matters should be judged based on their objectives. You should always look at the intent and the objective behind something to understand whether it's good or bad. And this is based on the hadith, hadith So as you can see, we've studied our Arabic, we've studied our logic, and then we looked at the hadith of and now we're getting a principle from it, which is what? Al-umuru bi-maqasidiha. So I hope you guys see the sort of progression, right? So... What's the next one? The next one is Al-Yaqinu La Yazulu Bishak. That certainty is not removed by doubt. What is a good example? This applies to lots of different scenarios. Let's give an example. Let's say somebody comes up to me and says, I don't know if I have wudu. Do I have wudu or not? I don't know. 
Okay, do you remember making wudu? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I made wudu earlier. Do you remember breaking your wudu? I don't really remember. I'm not 100% sure. Okay, so you are 100% sure that you made wudu. Yeah, I remember going to the bathroom and washing up. Good. But you don't remember if you broke your wudu. No. Okay, so that means the wudu is a certainty and the breaking is a doubt. Right? Okay, good. Let's apply this legal maxim. Al-yaqinu la yazulu bishak, which means that certainty is not removed by doubt. In other words, the certainty of you making wudu is not removed by the doubt of I might have or might not have broke my wudu. Does everybody understand this? So this is a, a nice example of this uh, being applied. There's another one, which is what? The next one, the third one is Al-mashaqqatu tajlibu taysir. Al-mashaqqa means hardship. Tajlibu, which means that it brings or it causes a taysir, ease. And this we could see in so many different Islamic rulings. So for example, you're studying fiqh and you realize that, oh, look at that. When I am fasting in Ramadan and I get sick, I don't have to fast. So because of a mashaqqa, the sickness, because of a hardship like sickness, I can stop fasting. Things are made more easy for me. Tajlibu taysir. Ease is brought. And also when I'm traveling, travel is a difficulty, I can shorten my prayers. I can also join my prayers. Right? Al-jama' wal qasr. Oh, look at that. That's interesting. And when I can't pray standing up, I'm allowed to pray sitting down. So it seems every single time that there is a difficulty, the Islam becomes easier for me. And Allah Ta'ala has made something to make this easier for me. It seems that al-mashaqqatu tajibu taysir. It seems that difficulty brings about ease. You guys get it? So by analyzing all these different fiqh scenarios and realizing the common thread between them, you realize that, hey, the general overall idea is difficulty brings about ease. So you see that with traveling, with sickness, with injuries, etc., etc. The fourth one is al-dararu yuzal. And this is from this hadith. Al-dararu yuzal is the principle, harm shall be removed. And the Prophet is saying, what? There should be no harm. There should be no reciprocation of harm. So in other words, what is the conclusion of this? And what is, the, you know, this is applicable, this qaida, this maxim, is applicable to every punishment, every type of law that keeps people in line. You know, why, is there, why are there punishments for stealing? Why are there punishments for killing? Why are there punishments for this, that, and the other? Well, to remove the harmship, remove the harm of theft, remove the harm of murder, remove all these harms. So you notice all this in Islam that is removing all these harms, and you say, oh, that must create a legal maxim. Al-dararu yuzal, that hardship, hardship is to be removed. And the fourth one that I, excuse me, the fifth one uh, that is uh, part of this list here is what? Al-adatu muhakkamatun. Al-adatu muhakkamatun, which is, Cultural culture is used in judgment. And what does this maxim imply? This implies that if you have uh, certain cultural norms, they are necessary to consider by the judge when making a ruling. So a good example of this is, let's say a couple is, you know, they're fighting a lot, they're, they're thinking about divorce, they, they're, they're at each other's throats, so they come before the judge and they start saying, he's not a good husband, she, she's not a good wife. No, he's not a good husband, back forth, back forth. So does the judge just consider Quran and Sunnah? Of course he considers Qur'an and Sunnah when figuring out the rights between a man and a woman. But also culture plays a very